The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two Siege Fall. Chapter Ten Ten Men. Uh, excuse me, Martin said, peeking around the bedroom door. Just, uh, coming in for a book. Okay, Susan said softly. Martin went straight to the bookcase, avoiding eye contact. I'm, uh, looking for a book that Jake gave me. He rummaged through his miscellaneous shelf of books that defied categorization. Ah, here it is. Martin was embarrassed that he had to blow the dust off the top. Trapper's Bible. Jake gave me this. He likes to hunt and trap. He wanted us to have more in common. Susan stared at her book, also avoiding eye contact. Uh, listen, Martin said quietly. At uh, target practice yesterday, I, I wasn't trying to. That's okay, she half whispered. I didn't mind. It was getting warm. Martin assumed it was because he had his coat on indoors. Um, I've got to go. She only nodded. What are you rummaging for? Margaret asked. Uh, peanut butter. It's not even close to lunchtime, she protested. Oh, not for me. The book says to use peanut butter as bait. I've been reading that in the book that Jake gave me for Christmas. There's a chapter on small animal snares. Figured I could, uh, ah, there it is. He took down the jar. Figured you could what? Well, maybe set some snares out back. If I could catch some squirrels or rabbits or something, it'll be quieter and save our twenty-two rounds for practice. That bunch needs a lot of practice. See, I got a roll of wire from the workbench and some tools. How much peanut butter are you planning to waste? It's part of our supply of proteins, you know. Waste? Such an optimist. The book made it sound like you only needed a little. How's this? Looks like about a tablespoon. Okay she said reluctantly. It better work. But just peanut butter? Don't you need something more substantial? What about these two flatbreads? They got a little dark and hard. I was going to give them to the chickens. Well, the book didn't say anything about flatbread, but I'll take them. Who knows? Maybe squirrels prefer little peanut butter sandwiches. Margaret swatted him on the shoulder. You're just mocking me now. They shared a smile. Martin crunched down the path to cross the little bridge and entered the pine woods. He scanned the ground for traces of animal runs, as the book had described. Nothing looked like the illustrations in the book. Did he even have animals in his backwoods? He knew squirrels cavorted in the trees along a swamp, so he decided to try some snares there. He set up a leaning pole on the big maple that he had bagged a squirrel on last time. A daub of peanut butter on the pole and he was finished. It all looked rather crude, not as tidy as the drawings. He hoped it'd work. While setting up another leaning pole, he heard leaves rustling. Perhaps it was the squirrel he heard yesterday. Shooting a squirrel was less bushcrafty than he wanted to be, but it wasn't a competition. The pot needed filled, regardless of method. He swung the twenty-two around and knelt for a good position. He waited for the squirrel to come bounding out of the brush. When it stood still to look around, he would squeeze off a shot, hopefully a headshot this time. The rustling never came closer. Martin grew curious and skeptical. He cautiously investigated. 
Oh, hey, said a startled Andy. Sorry about straying back on your side of the line, Mr. Homeowner, sir. Andy looked thinner and dirtier. My name is Martin. Oh, right, uh, Martin, sir. Not sir, just Martin. And why are you here, Andy? Martin sounded like a judge asking a defendant about his third DWI. Oh, yeah, okay. No, sir, Martin. Well, to be honest, you see, things are getting a little kind of, well, it looked like a whole ton of cattails when we got there, but, well, we're doing kind of an eat-out, kind of like the muskrats. He hung his head as if confessing. You're catching muskrats? Martin didn't even know there were muskrats in the area. He thought the college kids might have some trapping tips. Oh, no, not eating them. Eating like them. They go in cycles, you know. Population grows when food is plentiful. Lots of cute little muskrat babies running around going cheep, 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 or whatever sound it is they make. Never actually heard one, but they look so cute, I figured they had to sound cute, too. Uh, go on. Oh, yeah. So, they keep multiplying and eating until they've eaten more than the land can sustain. They eat out their habitat. Population crashes, the weak get sick and die. Most of the rest just starve. <laughs> Death. Dead muskrats all over. Andy got a tragic look on his face. Yeah, but we're doing kind of like the muskrats. You're running out of food in your camp? Martin asked the obvious to keep Andy talking. He wanted to know more. More like ran out. We dug up all the cattails we could find. The swamp pond is empty. We still find some roots, like this burdock I found back there. It was on the other side of the road, no, sir, Martin. Not on your side, huh? So don't go and get all mad and stuff. I'm not mad, Andy. It's And it's just Martin, not no, sir, Martin. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. I thought maybe there was still some, some beech nuts here under this tree that I didn't see. Really sorry about being all trespassy. Wasn't trying to, you know, like stomp on your rights and all. If Andy looked that scruffy, Martin wondered about the rest of the group. How are the rest of you doing? Andy tried to smile, but it didn't last. Oh, all right, I guess. Uh, Ashley isn't feeling too good. She feels cold a lot. We even made fires for her. Jared just stays in his hut most of the time. Uh, what about your leader, Cupcake? I, I mean, uh, what was her name? Oh, you mean Mara. <laughs> oh, man, don't ever call her Cupcake. That would be like the worst. Andy shuddered. She'd go femabilistic. Me, Brandon, and Jared, whoa, we'd take hell for the rest of the day just because we had a different chromosome. Oh, okay. Then I'll try not to slip up. Oh, but Mara, yeah, she's okay, holding up better than the rest of us. She's trying to keep us going, you know, all motivational speaker and go-getter-like. She's been great, just a little touchy, because, well, she's hungry, too. His voice trailed off. Martin imagined sick college kids huddled in debris huts. He felt a twinge of sympathy, the way you still wince when a kid wipes out attempting some stupid skateboard stunt. They did it to themselves, but still, you knew it had to hurt. No one forced these paleo-idealists to camp in the woods. Mara might be doing better than the rest, but judging from Andy's degraded appearance, she probably was in rough shape, too. Photoshopping had to wear off. Martin wasn't sure if he felt bad for Mara or not. She had a toxic attitude, but still, she was a woman, and a pretty one. He didn't like the image of a pretty woman suffering, even if it was a cranky one. You wouldn't happen to have, you know, like, uh, something to eat, would you? Andy looked like the big-eyed, starving African children in the missions posters. Except that he was white and twenty, and had a scraggly beard. 
At least the eyes look the same. Well, I've got a little peanut butter and these two hard flatbreads. Martin pulled them from his coat pocket. Andy stared at him like Golem at his ring. His hands reflexively rose to snatch the prizes, but pulled back. Oh, man, I, I don't know. Mara's going to yell her head off if she knew I ate capitalist food. Andy, it's flour, water, and oil. How is that capitalist? That was all Andy needed to decide. He snatched the bread, breaking it into fragments and stuffing them in his mouth. He dropped to his knees and picked up the bits that fell among the leaves. With both hands darting from ground to mouth and back, Andy resembled a crab feeding in a tide pool. Oh, man, this tastes so good. Oh, how I miff bread. Andy carefully picked the littler bits out of his beard and ate them, too. Well, I better get back, Andy said. They're going to think I ran away, but I'm not the running away kind. We got something to eat today. I found this great burdock root and these beech nuts. If if that's okay with you and all, since they were on your side of the capitalist oppressor line and all. Yes, you can have them, Andy. Martin felt bad for the skinny young man. You know, I might accidentally leave a flatbread out here under these beaches sometime when I'm checking my snares. You just never know. Andy's face lit up like an adopted puppy. Oh, you'd do that? Oh, man, you're all right for an evil capitalist oppressor. He smiled. Martin chuckled. Yeah, we can surprise people sometimes. Might be under a flower pot or something, just to keep the animals from getting the lost, he used air quotes, flatbread. Andy's smile faded. Well, I better get back. Don't want Mara coming here to find me seeing you again, and, oh man, if you ever do see her, do not ever call her Cupcake. Oh, that would be the worst. Andy turned and slunk quickly through the brush, with an animal-like flexibility. Martin set up two more snares with his wire and what was left of his peanut butter and then headed back. On the way back, he heard the generator start up again. It was a red cape in front of a bull. Not again, he muttered to himself. I thought we settled all that. Dustin was hunched over something near the shed. The generator putted away beside him. Martin stomped over madder than he was the first time. What in blazes are you doing? he shouted. He kicked off the generator's red switch. It wasn't just a few days ago I told you that we have to save gas. We can't be wasting it on trivial... Uh, what in blazes do you think you're doing? Dustin said nothing in his defense. He simply hung his head with a guilty little boy look. It reminded Martin of the time three-year-old Dustin painted the bumper of his truck with a can of OSHA yellow spray paint that Martin had foolishly left within a toddler's reach. Little Dustin thought his dad would be so proud of the color upgrade. Martin yelled a lot that day. Then he felt terrible. He felt terrible again. Apparently, he didn't learn much from the painted bumper incident. He looked at the pile of junk in front of Dustin. His curiosity trumped his anger. Uh, no, really, what are you doing? What is all this stuff? I was going to make a gasifier, but I needed to run some power tools to put it together. Once I figure out how to put it together, sorry, I should have asked you about it first, but Mom said you were in the woods and... A what? A gasifier. I saw it on an episode of The Colony a long time ago. These people were trapped in a building that had no power, and the evil gang thugs were outside, but they had a ton of wood pallets in with them. They made a gasifier to turn the wood into gas so that they could run their generator. 
I figured we could make one, too, and not use the gasoline to, uh... He trailed off, looking for clues as to which way Martin's mood was turning. Wait, Martin stared at the junk. How would that even work? Or was it just some dopey reality show gimmick? Oh, no, no, really, it works, Dustin brightened up, seeing that Martin wasn't yelling, but merely puzzled. I checked it out online after the show, because I wondered the same thing. He pulled two five-gallon metal cans over. Theirs work like this. In one can, they burned wood scraps, just to make heat. In the other can, they put little cut-up wood chunks from the pallets. They sealed the chunks can so the wood gas couldn't get out, see? Martin nodded, but really didn't understand. What good would gas in a sealed can do? Then they, they piped that wood gas through a filter of some kind. I kind of forgot that part. Then they piped it over to their generator. At first it didn't work, but they fiddled with it, and then it did. I figured I could use this can for my fire can, and this one for my wood chunks can. I could use hunks of these exhaust pipe sections to route the gas to the generator and run it without using any gasoline, and... Wait, where did all this junk come from? I don't remember any of this stuff. Oh, well, I sort of snuck into the transfer station and picked through the big metal dumpster. Kind of ripped my pants on the barbed wire fence, but... That's why I couldn't find the wagon, isn't it? Dustin hung his head. I didn't know you were going to look for it. Never mind, never mind. Turned out I didn't need it. Now, now go on. How's this gasifier thing supposed to work? Oh, oh, uh, well, you fill up the chunks can, and then you set it on the fire can. The fire cooks the wood chunks, and since they don't have enough oxygen or a flame to ignite their gases, the wood gas just cooks off. So you pipe that to an engine, and it burns like, uh, well, gas, which it is, in a different sort of way. Then what happens when the chunks are all cooked out? Martin was trying to get his head around the concept. Well, the people on the show would let it cool down, dump out the charred bits, and then refill it. So you could only run it for a little while before having to refuel? Oh, I guess so. Why? Martin's wheels were turning as he slowly paced around Dustin's pile of metal scraps. Wouldn't it be better if you could open the top and add new chunks without having to stop and let it cool down? Well, I suppose, but you'd be letting your gas out. The engine would stop anyhow. Maybe, maybe not. Martin squatted down to poke through the junk. To get the gases out of the chunks can and into their engine, there had to be a way for air to get in, right? Well, yeah, they punched some holes. Okay, so what if the air intake was smallish and was also a refueling hatch at the top? Air was flowing in anyway, right? Might alter the fuel-air mix, but it wouldn't stop the flow. Oh, I see what you mean. If the chunks can was tall enough, and you pulled the wood gas in from the bottom... Hmm, Martin frowned in concentration. The wood you burn in the bottom can, it just burns up, right? Uh, well, yeah, that's where you get the heat to cook the chunks. Okay, but... Okay, but think about our wood stove in the house. For a long, slow fire, we get a good bed of coals, then carefully arrange logs on top of that. The heat cooks off the gases in the logs, which burn all blue up near the top. Yeah, so? So the top logs eventually fall down into the coals and become fuel for the fire, too. We add more logs to the top and the cycle repeats. What if the wood chunks making the gas become fuel for the fire? Martin sketched an idea in the dirt. 
Dustin stacked up the various metal cans that he had brought home. None of it looked right. They agreed to move their design committee meeting to the dining room table, where it was warmer. They scribbled over several sheets of paper, but had to evacuate the table. Lunch was ready. Man, all that carrying of firewood really made me hungry, said Adam, as he took his seat. Me too, added Trish. That water's really heavy, and doing laundry in that tub takes a lot of water. Everyone devoured their meager portion of carrots, rice, and beans. Martin quietly pocketed half of his flatbread. Uh, could I have some more? Adam asked. Well, I'm still hungry. I'm afraid that's it for this meal, Adam. Sorry, said Margaret. But why? Those selectmen dudes, they gave you like two big boxes of food. Yes, but we have to make it last. We need to limit ourselves to 1,800 calories a day. You got half of that just now. Hungry will be the new normal around here until something improves. The alternative is full today and starve tomorrow. Adam didn't like that answer, but had no credible protest. A sullen frown was the best he could muster. Martin was glad that it didn't escalate into another food tantrum like it did with Ruby. The rest of the meal was quiet. Somehow, knowing that portions were limited made the food on the plate less filling. You'd best get a nap in, Adam, Martin broke the veil of silence. You'll have the first dark watch tonight. Martin and Dustin had metal scraps, pipes, cans, and sheet metal scattered all over the driveway. They lined up their power tool requirements, cutting, drilling, grinding, until they had a critical mass sufficient to warrant running the generator for the power tools. Once the major elements were cut, fitted, and assembled, the contraption needed time for the various J.B. Wells seams to set up. The two men set to creating fuel for their gasifier. Dustin chipped at some logs with a hatchet. Martin used a brush clippers to make breakfast link-sized chunks from branches in the brush pile. He was glad he had procrastinated the usual burn-the-brush-day chore. It took longer than they thought to fill two five-gallon buckets with chips and chunks. Well, the goop is hard on the seams, Dustin declared. Let's fire it up. Okay, said Martin. A small fire at first, just to season it and check for leaks. They scooped in a small load of chips. Martin opened the little hatch in the paint can at the bottom. The lighter started eager yellow licks amid the crumpled paper. A few long breaths blown on the flames had the chips and the chunks raging. He locked the hatch. Okay, start the fan. The fire needs a draft now. Dustin began spinning a spoked pulley that he had fastened to the end of a squirrel cage blower. It was both a hand wheel and a flywheel. He had to keep giving it periodic strokes to keep the speed up. Eventually, white smoke began to puff out of the flattened copper pipe, the jet. How long do we let it burn? Dustin asked. Well, this is mostly just to cook off the volatiles in the seam goop, which really stink right now. But hey, try and uh, light the smoke, Martin said. The white smoke would not ignite, even with the flame held right within it. This is what happened to people in the colony, too. Mm, so what did they do to fix it? Well, I don't know. Cameras never really showed. Well, let's let it burn out. That was enough for the first burn. The flywheel slowed to a stop. The white smoke faded away. What is that? asked Susan, in the way someone might while pointing to a platypus. It's, it's a gasifier, 
beam, Dustin. At least it's supposed to be. A what? A gasifier. It's supposed to make combustible gases. Martin paused. He did it again. He wondered if he had some bizarre variety of Tourette's. Instead of spontaneous curse words, he would say combustible gases whenever Susan was nearby. She noticed and smiled. Yeah, well, anyhow, it makes gases out of wood that we can use to make the generator run. She looked unimpressed, as if there ought to be more. Uh, well, hopefully. That's the theory, anyhow. She studied the ad hoc assembly of scrap metals with her hands on her hips. She tilted her head one way and then another, like a dog trying to understand its master. You know, she said, it looks kind of like the Tin Man from A Wizard of Oz. What? said Dustin. Oh, no, I was thinking of something more NASA-like. Sort of a tall Mars lander thing. No, no, don't you see? This big can part is his chest. This little can below it is his waist. You gave him two little legs below that. Well, never mind that third leg in the back. That would be like a tail, and the tin man didn't have a tail. But look here. This big pipe on one side is like his arm, and that tall cylinder thing is his other side. That's the vortex filter, interrupted Dustin. Whatever. It looks like his other arm. See? A body, legs, and arms. What he's missing is a head. Susan rummaged through the unused scrap. Aha! She set a quart paint can on top with a little giggle. There's his head. See? The Tin Man. Martin had to agree, and so Tin Man was born. Martin took a last deep breath of warm air before slipping out beneath the blanket and out the back door. The midnight air had a sharp crispness to it that stung inside his nostrils. He walked slowly around to the back of the house, trying to be silent enough to hear whatever other sounds the night might have for him. The house had been dark since supper, so he already had some night vision. Being familiar with the house and the yard made what little he could see just enough to navigate without a flashlight. He moved in slow increments around the back corner of the house, practicing seeing slices of pie before exposing himself. There was nothing there. There was never anything there, for which he was very thankful. But practicing such things gave him something to keep his mind occupied. On the midnight to 4 a.m. watch, that was important. Martin wondered where Adam had set himself up for his watch. Martin came to relieve him, but had to find him first. He wasn't on the front porch, nor was he in the hidey hole. Martin wondered if Adam had gotten clever and set himself up in a tree stand or something. A faint scraping sound perked up his ears. Was it an animal or a person? Dragging something? It was coming from the road, or at least it seemed like it was until Martin passed the shed. It was coming from the shed. There was no way to open the shed's creaky hasp quietly, so Martin counted on the element of surprise. He had his maglite and nine-millimeter ready. He yanked open the door. Dunnan sat up quickly, startled, blinded by the flashlight. You, you were sleeping on a pile of tarps? Martin tried not to sound as angry as he was. Oh, hey, uh, sorry about that. I just got really tired, you know, towards the end. I was I was awake and I was watching and listening the whole time, or nearly the whole time. It was just near the end. I was uh, checking out the shed, yeah, and uh, just stopped to rest. I didn't think I'd fall asleep. Uh, really sorry about that, man. It won't happen again. 
Martin wanted to shake Adam by the collar. He was so angry. Through clenched teeth, he said, This had better not happen again. Everyone in that house is counting on you to watch for trouble. And you were sleeping. The next time you think you can't stay awake, come back in and get relieved. Sleeping on a watch is never acceptable. Oh, I know, I know. I, I'm really sorry. Uh, it'll never happen again, I promise. Uh, always awake. Uh, always watching. Martin growled. Now get in the house. Put the revolver in the box. Martin flung the shed door wide so Adam could pass. It would take a good half an hour for his night vision to recover from the flashlight beam. He sat on a wood pallet near the shed. He could barely make out the silhouette of the house against the starry sky. He closed his eyes to concentrate on hearing the night sounds and to not dwell on Adam. Slowly, the quiet sounds of night drained away his anger. A pair of barred owls, one near and one far, debated who cooks for you. Another night bird of some kind was making a soft pip-pip sound in the trees lining Baldwin's meadow. A faint clank or a bang would waft in with its own semi-echo that signaled that it had come from far away. A door slammed. The way sound carried in the cold night air, it could have been a couple of miles away. The night was quiet. Martin liked it that way. At breakfast, Dustin was excited to work on Tin Man again. He got so carried away describing his next steps that little spatters of cream of wheat trailed down his chin. Margaret smiled. Susan did, too. Martin pretended not to see it. Finally, when Judy saw it, she was horrified that her very own husband would look like that. She took a napkin and wiped his chin. Dustin didn't notice. He just kept talking. Dustin kept talking while he and Martin walked out to the driveway. He was convinced that the failure to light the jet was from stoking too small of a fire or not letting it get hot enough. His theory was that the white smoke was mostly moisture in the wood cooking off. Steam, basically. They both stopped when they saw Tin Man. Oh man, Dustin whined. I was going to make a nose cone or something so it'd look like a rocket. But she went and drew a face on the can. He pointed with both hands. I can't make it look like a rocket now. He's got a head and face with little eyes. Oh, man. Martin had to chuckle. Martin lit the fire in the burn chamber. Dustin spun the flywheel to get the draft going. White smoke began to flow out of the jet. Dustin wanted to be patient, but it wasn't easy. Ten long minutes was a long time to keep the fan's flywheel spinning. Slowly, the smoke began to change from white to gray and then to blue. Dustin held the lighter to the blue smoke. It puffed a couple of times, but it finally caught. A nearly invisible jet of pale blue flame crackled at the end of the copper jet. Dustin shouted and jumped around in a happy dance, at least as much as he could while still spinning the flywheel. They had succeeded in extracting combustible gases from wood chips. Martin was excited, too. He was happy that Susan wasn't around, or he might have erupted into uncontrollable shouting of combustible gases, combustible gases. Margaret came to see what all the whooping was about. She got a happy son, one-armed hug. Judy smiled, partially in embarrassment at her husband's boyish excitement. Susan rounded the corner and looked amused. Martin made sure not to speak. The Dunnans came to see what all the noise was about. 
Adam avoided eye contact with Martin, but that suited Martin just fine. Margaret brought everyone a celebratory apple wedge. The next step would be crucial, hooking Tin Man up to the engine of the generator. It was one thing to make some blue smoke burn. It was quite another to make a four-stroke engine run. The successful burn gave Martin and Dustin enough enthusiasm to overlook how little they had figured out for their next steps. Small-engine carburetors are fussy things compared to pop-riveted seal-coat cans and tailpipes. The work was slow. They took a break for lunch. Dustin continued to talk all the way through lunch, too. The women all gave each other little sideways glances and knowing smiles. A shared feminine burden of enduring long bursts of guy talk about carburetors, intake strokes, valves, and such. Dustin didn't notice. While Dustin fabricated piping to connect Tin Man to the carburetor, Martin set up for another round of target practice. The ice broken, this session was advertised as focusing on technique. Martin was not all that concerned about their technique yet. He simply wanted them to get more comfortable shooting. Hitting the bullseye would come later. Adam was quiet through practice. He took his shots and got most of his hits on the paper. He left the practice as soon as he was done, disappearing in the house. Judy continued to struggle. The morality was not letting go of her. Martin set her up an alternative target. She was happier shooting at a tin can that sat near one of the legs at the backstop. The paper target might have symbolized the center of a human being too much for her. Intentionally aiming somewhere else came a whole lot easier. She hit the can once, which spawned a broad smile. She sounded disappointed that Margaret called her in to help with the bread. Martin took that as a good sign. A very small step, but a good sign. Martin stood a step farther away from Susan as she practiced. Her face showed grim resolve. Martin gave her a few tips with his hands in his pockets. She acknowledged with a nod, but not making eye contact. Her aim improved. She was getting six-inch groups. Trish took her turn enthusiastically. Her first two shots were respectably closer to the dot than the edge of the paper. Her next two shots were wild. Ow! Trish said. Something hurt my hand. Well, you have your free hand too far forward, said Martin. Wrap your fingers tighter around your trigger hand. Like this? Martin slumped. No, that's worse. Interweave. Lay the top fingers into the valleys of... I can't get it. What do you mean, valleys? The spaces between... Oh, here, I'll show you. Martin stepped over and placed her fingers in the gaps of her trigger hand. How hard was that to understand, he thought. She already had it once. Like this? Trish leaned closer toward him slightly and made a slow little tilt of her head, as if trying to rub her cheek against his. It reminded Martin of how Pudge used to rub his cheek against the table legs or door jams, especially when it was close to supper time. Martin pulled his head back. Her hair tickled his nose. What an odd move, he thought. Maybe her coat felt all bunched up or something, and she had to shift to get it to hang better. Uh, yeah, try it now. Trish fired two more rounds. Both landed near the dot. Oh, Martin, you're such a good teacher, Trish said breathily. I'm sure if you keep teaching me, I could be really good. She put the revolver on the table. I have to go inside and change out of these clothes. She glanced at his eyes. 
My turn for watch is coming up soon. I need to put on something warmer. I don't like being cold. She walked up the hill with more twisting to her gait than Martin remembered. Maybe her coat really doesn't fit well. What was that all about? Susan said in a half-whisper. Her tone was accusing, her eyes narrow. What was what all about? Martin wondered if Susan noticed the ill fit of Trish's coat, too. Women notice clothing things faster than guys do. That that whole I-don't-know-where-to-put-my-hands thing. Susan mocked Trish's tone. She said the shot hurt her hands. Martin had the recent events in mental rewind, searching for what Susan thought that was. Susan leveled a stare at Martin, her eyes narrower still. Are you telling me you didn't see what she was doing? See what? What did she do? Martin was trying to remember how Trish held her hands. None of Susan's line of questions made any sense to him. She stared hard into his eyes. He wondered if he was supposed to say something, but forgot what it was. It was a pop quiz, and he was totally unprepared. What? he asked again. Her face relaxed, only to take on that sad, puzzled look again. You really don't know, do you? Know what? Martin was getting flustered. You need to use some nouns and verbs. This feels like some Abbott and Costello routine. I don't know what you're talking about. She shook her head, like a teacher handing back yet another F paper. Oh, Martin. Susan went on to shoot a three-inch group. She seemed surprised and pleased. Wow, you did really well. Martin was impressed. I kind of did. Maybe I just needed a little motivation. Huh? Never mind, Martin. I'm going to stop here before I mess it up and ruin it. Here, I'll help you carry all this stuff. Martin took the 1022 out into the woods to see if that supper squirrel was still frolicking in the leaves. He had to check on his snares anyhow. The woods seemed particularly quiet. His first snare looked like it had been ravaged by Visigoths. The wire was all torn away and the peanut butter licked off the bark. He shook his head and coiled up the tangled wire. The second snare hadn't been touched, but the peanut butter was gone. He had neglected to bring more with him. He would only have to make another trip out to rebate them and then reset the first snare. He wondered if there was something in the woods much larger than a squirrel that was eating the bait and savaging his wire snares. He cast a wary eye through the naked trees. Approaching his third snare, his heart leapt with joy. Hanging from the lean pole was a gray squirrel. Ah, so I got you after all. I bet that's why the woods are so quiet today, eh? There's probably just enough time before dark to get you cleaned up for the pot. He disengaged the stiff squirrel. The wire could be straightened out and reset, but he still had no fresh bait. The prospect of a second trip into the woods didn't seem as much of a failure now. He was coming home as the successful hunter. He also wondered if the woods had become so quiet because he had taken the last squirrel. He shook off the thought. There had to be others. They're just somewhere else at the moment. On his way back, Martin stopped at the beech trees. He set his half of flatbread on the leaves and covered it with the drip tray of a flower pot. He worried that he was only feeding a stray dog, but he was too soft-hearted not to. Soup, said Adam flatly. A little break from rice and beans, I suppose. He stirred his bowl. Mostly broth, he said to himself. 
You guys have chickens, said Trish, taking her seat. Probably make a lot of chicken soup, right? Margaret simply smiled. Martin passed around the platter of flatbread, one disc per person. Their chicken soup can be really special sometimes, Susan said with a piercing look at Martin. Is this? Yes, this is one of those special ones, Martin said with a half a wink. Oh, Susan sighed and fished around the bowl with her spoon. Great, I'm starved, added Dustin. Can I say the prayer tonight? Martin nodded. It was the typical short prayer of an impatient, hungry young man. So I uh, took the little radio up on the meadow hill today, Dustin said between noisy slurps. I could get a couple of stations up there. One was out of Manchester, I think. It was kind of weak. They were talking about police zones or something. I didn't get it, and it faded out. The mass station was clearer. They were talking about some hang-ups of shipments of aid. Trucks were supposed to come to Salem, Nashua, and Manchester yesterday, but they were held up by some transportation snafu or something. They should be able to get things cleared up, though. Sounds like the trucks were arriving in Worcester and Lowell the other day or so. Think that Ohio thing is part of the problem? Could be, said Martin. Thanks for listening, and I'd like to give a special thank you to those who've left five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or wherever you're listening to the podcast. I do appreciate the five-star ratings and the kind words in the reviews. Thanks a bunch.